compassion of God. How deep its riches. How immaculate the knowledge of our Lord. His understanding is unsearchable. His judgment irrefutable. Have you not known or heard? He is everlasting, the creator from the beginning to the ends of the earth, but created us for his own pleasure, rejoicing in his works, his reign endures forever. God is the majestic king who loves equity and justice, yet he extends his heart to humanity in unconditional covenant. He pours out his wrath on the unjust who deserve the indictment, but only his son renders sinners to be righteous. This was for his fame and for the exalting of his throne. If you've received salvation, it was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, Soli Deo Gloria. Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43. Isaiah 43. And if you grabbed one of the Bibles as you walked in this morning, it can be found on page 603. Isaiah chapter 43, and beginning at verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by, by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. 
I'm really glad we can study the Word together today. Appreciate uh, John and the reading of the Word right there. Um, I've really benefited, my family has really benefited from these sermons and the study and the Wednesday nights on, uh, on the Reformation. Uh, this will be the concluding message on the Reformation, but uh, the kids this Wednesday will have a little bit more Reformation on Wednesday night. The teens will be leading an activity there. And uh, I pray that we will continue to think through the Reformation once this month is over because the continuation of the Reformation is so, so desperately needed. Let's uh, open in prayer, then we'll get into the Word. Heavenly Father, we are weak vessels. One of the things we so appreciate about these Reformers is they were saying, it's not about us, it's not about us, it's about God. And Lord, in the preaching today, in the, in the music today, and the worship that overtakes all of it, in, in everything we do, Lord, we want you to be glorified. This is not a thing that we do just to say we do something, but Lord, we want you to be lifted up, magnified, and seen as you truly are, the creator and sustainer of the universe who has chosen to redeem sinful man, unbelievable. And we get to stand here together today and say, that's my Savior, that's my God. And Lord, I thank you that we can do that together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you're there in Isaiah 43. Before we get into the text, I wanted to share a little bit more about what was going on with, with John Calvin. Uh, Pastor Mark did a really good explanation of some of the things that Calvin had done about a month back. I have just a little short story that I think fits in with our text today. In, in 1539, John Calvin is 30 years old. We're 22 years past the time when Luther nailed his 95 Thesis up. And Calvin's only been a believer for seven years. So, so put yourself in his shoes a little bit. 30 years old. He's only been a believer for seven years old. He's ridiculously smart. God is blessing him. He is studying and studying and studying. But he's a relatively new Christian. He's living in Strasbourg at this time. He's been there about a year. There's a crisis. There's an Italian cardinal named James Soldalet or Soldaletto. It's pronounced a couple different ways. But this Italian cardinal is saying, you know what, we've got a problem. I do not like what's happening up there in Geneva, Switzerland. I'm going to do something about it. And he writes this really, really long letter trying to recapture Geneva for the Roman Catholic Church. Calvin's not living in Geneva at this time. A little bit of irony here. Geneva had kicked him out a year earlier and had said, yeah, you were our pastor, but uh, eh, we don't really like what you're doing right here. You're out of here. And they kicked him out along with Farrell, his buddy, and they're living in Strasbourg. And he's writing, and he's in academia. He's also preaching, leading the church. And he's not in Geneva. They kicked him out. But Geneva gets this letter from Soldaletto, and they don't know what to do with it. They, they don't know how to answer it. And so they pass it on to some authorities, um, some reformers in Bern, Switzerland. And those authorities, they don't know what to do with it either because it's, the argumentation's pretty tough and it's a really long letter to know what to do. So they say, hey, Calvin, you want to write them a letter back? And Calvin defends Geneva, the same town, church, city that had kicked him out, voted him out not much before that. And he didn't just defend Geneva. Truly, he was defending his Savior. And he writes to Soldaletto and he says this, he says, your zeal keeps a man entirely devoted to himself and does not even a little arouse him to sanctify the name of God. 
Then he goes on to say, the prime motive of existence is zeal to illustrate the glory of God. What's he saying to Soldaletto? You're writing this letter just appealing to these people saying, you people are so great, you deserve this, and you'll get this, and if you stick with us, you'll get this. And Calvin says, that's not our purpose. Our purpose is oh so much different and greater than that. Our purpose is to illustrate the glory of God. What types of things diminished the glory of God in the minds of the reformers? We've talked about those in the past. Other, other men have been preaching and talking about that. But uh, papal infallibility was a huge issue. When the pope is sitting in the, the ex-cathedra or in the chair, when he's in a position of authority, what he says has extreme authority, equal to that of the word and God himself. That was a problem. The veneration of Mary, relics. Do some reading on relics sometimes. You know, this, this church over here has a finger that's supposedly from this guy or that guy. This church over here has some clothing from this person or that person. Praying to saints. You think, praying to saints, what? Well, well, think with me a little bit here. What did Martin Luther do? Many of you have been here on Wednesday nights for the video, and the, and the final one is going to be this Wednesday night. But what did, what did Luther do? He's a young man. He's traveling. There's a terrible thunderstorm. I think he gets knocked off his horse or he hits the ground and he says, Dear Jesus, help me. No, what does he, what does he really say? Saint Anne, help me. And it was normal. And that's what was normal to him at that time. There were some huge issues in the Reformation. But I would argue, and I think most of us would agree, what do people in the past and what do we still want to do today? We want to devalue God and exalt humanity. From very earliest times, read in Genesis 11:4 about Babel. And what do the people there say? We want to make a name for ourselves. How about we fast forward a little bit to Acts 12 with Herod. Remember Herod, he's in his robes and he makes a speech. And if you were in the audience for that and you saw Herod make that speech, he makes a speech and it's so powerful and the clothing that he's wearing and the people said, he's, he's a god, he's like the gods. And what happens? He falls dead and is eaten by worms in front of them. And if I was in that audience and if you were in that audience and your kids were in that audience, they'd be saying, whoa. And what, is, what does the Bible say about that? It says, he was eaten by worms and he did not give God the glory. Fast forward a little bit to Isaiah, or I guess we could back up a little bit from that time. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11 emphasizes and pushes God saying, I will not give my glory to another. And that's the God we serve. He is completely loving and he is completely generous and he is completely redeeming. But he will not give his glory to another. The five solas that the reformers push that we've reviewed week after week, that scripture alone is authoritative and scripture alone teaches the following truths. That salvation is by grace alone. It's received through faith alone. It's on the basis of Christ alone. So that all things might be to the glory of God alone. And in light of that, I want to look at Isaiah 43 today. Now, it might not be the, the typical text you might be thinking of. Um, Romans 11 is a huge one. Ephesians uh, one is another huge one. There's others as well, 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to look at some of those a little bit, but I kind of want to, to orient our thinking initially to Isaiah 43. And really, in Isaiah 43, God is assuring his people that he will restore them. He's not assuring them that he's going to make their life nice. 
not assuring them that he's going to make their life a heaven on earth. He's not assuring them that he's going to give them mere prosperity, but rather he's going to restore and restore for a purpose. Restore for the purpose of bringing himself glory. So it's sola deo gloria in the context of real, human, difficult, uncertain life. Kind of split into two parts. God's children are not to be afraid. And the second part, that God's children were created for a bigger purpose. So first of all, let's look at this. God's children are not afraid. If you're with me in Isaiah 43, let's read a little bit of, read a little bit of that there. It says in chapter 43, it says, but now. It says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. And we just need to get in our mind, he has that but now because the previous chapter he's saying, We've got a problem on our hands. You have not been following me. You have not been believing in me. You, you, you talk this way, but your actions don't back it up. We have a problem. But, but now says, but, but I've got a solution for you. I am the answer for you. And we know that Isaiah was written roughly the year 700 B.C., about 700 years before the time of Christ. We, we don't know exactly when it, when it was written, but we do know some of the stuff that was going on at that time. We know that the uh, very aggressive and very evil and very destructive to the Israelites, uh, Assyrians were getting stronger and stronger and stronger. You can kind of think of modern-day Asia Minor or, or Turkey, and they were coming down, and you want to do some uh, gruesome reading with your children, uh, you know, read uh, you know, Sennacherib or Ashurbanipal or any of those leaders, pretty awful stuff. And um, that's the context of Israel, this little country. You've got Egypt so powerful below and Assyria increasingly powerful above, and Babylon's coming right around the bend. And in the midst of all of that, um, God is purifying through judgment, but he has gracious purposes. Um, Isaiah 19 is a powerful verse that encourages us today when it reminds us when God says, you know, there's going to be some punishment for this nation and punishment for this nation and punishment for this nation. But I'm going to tell you, there's a future time coming, God says in Isaiah 19, when even these other countries that bookend Israel I'm going to redeem them, and they're going to be called my people. So gracious purposes in the midst of, of uh, punishment. I think we could say that. And 43 uses the term fear not repeatedly. So it goes on. It says, he who created you, he who formed you in verse 1, says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. And I wouldn't be too concerned there. Some commentators are pretty concerned with matching those up with specific instances in Israel's history. I'm not very concerned with that. I think big picture, he's saying disaster is a part of life. Judgment comes as a result of your actions that have been in rebellion against me. But you know what? I am by your side. I am your God, and you are my people. He says in verse 3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. And then he goes on in, in verse 4. So God created, he formed, he redeemed. Knowing our personal sinfulness must bring fear, but knowing his redemption, knowing that he made us, know that he, knowing that he bought me, should bring great, great comfort, whether you're 700 years before the time of Christ or we're living 2,000 years after the time of Christ. And you might say, well, I don't know why he did this. 
but I know that he did. And we're going to see some verses in here that talk about God's love for his children. And I think uh, anybody in here who's a parent or a grandparent would say, man, this is how much I love my kid. And you so show pictures of them, and you tell people this is how good-looking they are, and you really, really believe it. But in reality, you see other people's kids and other pictures of other people's kids, and you know what you think. Huh, he seems like a nice kid. And you all have, every one of us does, admit it to yourself or otherwise, you have Facebook friends that think their cat or their kid or their pony or whatever is the most amazing thing ever. And really, it's just a normal one. I had a guy that uh, wrote just the other day, and he said, uh, like, future supermodel about his nine-year-old. And if you were on a really small island, that might be the case. But she was just a real average kid. But her dad loves her deeply, deeply. He's a doctor. He's a very successful guy, a very nice guy. Friends with him for 10 years, but it's just a kid. And that's the thing that you have, because why? Because it's your kid. I saw a picture of the red ferns with Judson from nine years ago that Dave had put out there. And there's this little bitty kid, and there's, you know, uh, Mark and, and uh, Katie look like they're 18, and they're holding that little boy, and they're saying, this kid is mine. And that's what God is saying here about us, about his children. They are mine, because they're so great, because they're so good, because I do so many awesome things. Uh-uh. He's mine. They're my children. Look at how God loves his children look at verse four it says because you are precious in my eyes and honored i love you i give men in return for you peoples in exchange for your life fear not for i am with you i will bring your offspring from the east and from the west i will gather you and i will say to the north give up and to the south do not withhold bring your sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth everyone who's called by my name He's saying, I don't just love you and I leave you over there. I love you and I'm going to bring you to myself. And how comforting would that be to read in a future time when your Daniel and your best friends are probably going to die in the furnace. And God chose to not have them die. But when you're Daniel and you're praying for them and you're thinking, they're probably going to die. I know God could make it happen otherwise. He has the power to do so, but they're probably going to die. And how much comfort would this give you 150 years later, 140 years later, 125 years later, when you're a captive in exile in Babylon? And you read this text and you say, hey, everything around me is terrible. My kids are becoming more secular. I am treated almost like a slave here in Babylon. I am hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles from the promised land. I, I, we cannot sacrifice. The priesthood is a shambles of what it once was. I want to go back, but I can't go back. When are we going to get to go back? And I read a verse that's here that says, You are my children. I will gather you from all over the place and bring you back to myself. Huge, huge comfort. And how comforting are these words for us to read today? Maybe when you've lost your job, or you've lost your spouse, or you're dealing with something really, really difficult. Or you see wickedness increasing on the earth. And you see increasing apathy among professing believers. We can know that God makes a promise here that he will gather those who are truly his. He is God. But we must not read this passage. We just have to have a little, little caveat here. We, we must not read this passage and say, wow, I am so amazing. Wow, I just, I hook God up every time he just gets to see my face. 
I know I, I heard sermons when I was younger of pastors saying, the most exciting thing is if I decide to hook up God today and, and, and do a little prayer of salvation. Or without me, God is lonely. And there's that temptation to be said all over in, in broader Christianity, but we need to have some, some accurate thinking on this. There's a theological position or statement, and it's called the independence of God. And the basic idea is that God does not need you. God does not need me. And if that hurts our feelings, it's a healthy hurting. Because God had perfection within the Godhead before any of us came around in uh, John 17, 24. It says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me before you loved me, because you loved me, before the foundation of the world. Perfect communion in the Godhead, pre-Thad, pre-any of us, pre-creation, perfect communion within the Godhead. We also know that God doesn't, isn't lonely or need anything. In Acts 17, pretty famous sermon, says the God who made the heaven, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. So then the question we must ask is, why did God create you? Why did God create me? When we look in the mirror and we see our own sin and our weakness and our selfishness, and when we sin repeatedly and we say, no, 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 and then again and again, why did God create us if he didn't need us? Well, we know that Deuteronomy uh, 9 is a pretty cool chapter. You could do some reading there where God says, hey, you're going to go into this, this nation that you did not possess, but you're going to possess it, and you're going to get houses that you didn't build and vineyards that you didn't plant and trees that you didn't plant, and I'm just going to make this happen. But don't you dare think that when you go in there that you did this because you're so great. Because you're not. He says, I didn't do it because of your righteousness. I'm doing this because of the evil of the nations around you in Deuteronomy 9. I didn't do this because we're a step better than our neighbor. Well, you know, I've got this neighbor that does this, this, and this. Or I've got, you know, these uh, bank robbers in Fordsville that do this, this, and this. Or we've got all this different stuff. And I'm a, I'm a step better than them. That is not the reason. Turn with me, we're going to use this as a sister passage. Turn with me to Ephesians 1. Um, or you can just listen as, as I read. But I think Ephesians chapter 1 helps us answer this question of why did God even create people? We've established it's not because of our righteousness. But we'll just read um, maybe 3 through 6 and then 11 and 12. Paul says... Uh, to the Ephesian church, to Timothy, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And look at this next part of this verse to the praise of his glorious grace. And then in 11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
to the praise of his glory. So God's children should not fear. The second point being God's children have a bigger purpose in life to glorify God. I remember my uh, junior year of high school. I went to a Christian high school that was very influenced by a a, um, very, very conservative college. And I remember just hearing over and over, I'm sure I heard sound sermons probably from my home church on on the purpose of humanity. Why are we even here? And and the two typical ones that will be given, is it a soteriological purpose? That is, are we here to see souls saved? Is that my highest and greatest good, to see people led to the Lord and come to Christ? Or is the highest good a doxological purpose? We read the doxology, that's glory. So is the highest purpose to glorify God? And, and at that school, at that time, it was soteriology over and over and over. That's, that's all we heard. You are here to get people saved, to see people saved, get people saved. And I will tell you, it is a glorious thing to see people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But that is not our greatest good. And I remember Rick Cross talking to us, and he was the youth pastor at that time. And he had been studying and reading and studying and reading uh, outside of, of maybe what he had learned in college or wherever else. And I remember he asked that question, and he said, so guys, what about, it was like a men's, bi- it was a boys' Bible class, juniors and seniors. And so what's the purpose? And everybody said, well, it's to see people saved. And he said, let's look at the Bible. And he took us through verse after verse after verse that showed there is a doxological purpose for living. Why am I here? To bring glory to God. Seeing souls saved is a subset of that, but to bring glory to God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's a pretty good, succinct premise. And what is glory? That's a question. A lot of times when when I teach with the teens or when I'm working with my own kids or when I'm, you know, talking with people at work, I, try, I want it to be at a level, so what does this mean? So we can say, I want everything to be for the glory of God. Well, what does it even mean to be for the glory of God? Well, maybe you've been a believer for a long time, and you could give some great answers, but just so we can all be on, on the same page here, what does it mean, the glory of God? What is glory of something? Well, glory is going to be things like beauty, excellence of perfections, the fullness of good, of good harmony of attributes, and we looked at that connected to God. And the question you might ask is, okay, so can I bring glory by the things I do, or am I truly revealing glory? Because really, I can't bring glory so much to God as I am revealing who he is in his perfections. I don't make God, we don't make God more beautiful. We don't make him any more perfect. We don't improve on his attributes. We are really wanting to see them as they truly are. And so um, with the teens, we've been watching a little, little Piper video on some Wednesday nights. And one of the illustrations that he gives there that many of you have heard is, are we, are we saying we're being a microscope on God? So we're, we're taking something very, very small and, and we're making it a little bit bigger? Are we a microscope with God? Or are we, the correct answer is, a telescope? Are we taking something that is humongous and we're trying to get it so we can see it a little bigger? It's not getting any bigger. It can't get any bigger. We're just trying to see it in a bigger way. And that is really what we are doing with the glory of God. The glory of God, he cannot be more glorious. He cannot be more beautiful. He cannot be more perfect. But we as people are saying, not something little that we're making a little bit bigger. We're saying it's this huge, 
We're just trying to see it a little more clearly. And, and we can have a part in saying, this is who he is. This is how great our God is. Most of us know Piper's phrase, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And if we think about a purpose in life, that is a really serious one to think about. A couple of verses that I would like to read that go along with that would be from Psalm 16. The psalmist says to God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 73 is another one. It says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Powerful words from the psalmist right there. Another one, uh, a book that you might even put some thought into getting would be from Sam Storms called The Singing God. And I don't know, we've got people from all kinds of different backgrounds in here, but if you, are fr- if you have an understanding of your sinfulness as you stand before a holy God, and I will say, you could say, well, if you come from a legalistic church, you might feel that way, and that could be true. But truly, anybody who is a true believer, who has an understanding of the depth of our sin, against a perfect, just, and holy God, we should feel guilty. We should feel our lowliness. And we should revel even in a greater way on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ. But we should have some weight on us that I am guilty before God, but I have Jesus. Sam Storms' book called The Singing God reminds us that God loves us and he is for us. And uh, the main passage that it takes us from Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God in your midst is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And then this last phrase, He will exult over you with loud singing. And some in here might be saying, No, 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 you don't understand. I mean, I trust Christ as my Savior, but I, I mess up. I fail. I fall short. Well, as I remind the teens all the time and as I look in the mirror and remind myself, God loves sinful persons such as I and sent his son for me and reached out and is and has done the same thing for you when you think about redemption. So you think about that. Now, some objections that you might have to the glory of God. Um, If a human seeks glory, it's repulsive. So when we look at society and we see pastors that are seeking glory for themselves, I hope you are repulsed. Uh, When we look at athletes seeking glory for themselves or politicians or your two-year-old or whomever seeking glory for themselves, I hope you're repulsed. It is not right. It is not good. But when we look at God having created, as Isaiah 43 reminds us, having formed, having redeemed, having loved, he is worthy of that glory. Revelation 4 talks about a future time with the 24 elders singing And they're saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Romans 11, you know, we could could go a lot in Romans where it says, hey, you're the clay. How can the clay say to the potter, this is how I want things to be? If you're molding something, you know, you're working something through, you're making a little cup or a pot or whatever, you don't say, hey, this is how I want it to be. The potter makes the decision there. And over and over, Paul says in Romans, hey, how can the clay say to the potter, this cannot be? And it's quoted in Isaiah as well. Um, Another another idea in Romans 11 is, who is God's counselor? 
you know, as a, as a pastor for, for quite a few years, I did a lot of counseling. Uh, the lead pastor of the church didn't, didn't like doing much counseling, so I got to do a lot. I'll tell you, early on, I'm like 27, and I'd have people come in, and it would be issue after issue after issue. I remember just thinking, for a lot of, I, I didn't even know this kind of thing happened. Over time, you're studying the word, and you're saying, I, I don't have answers, but I know God has answers in here, and I, I would counsel and God would be counseling me, and I would be reading books on how I can better use God's word to influence people for Christ. But it's a rare thing if the counselee will say to the counselor, hey, here's how it's going to go down. They're fresh off the street, and they say, my life is falling apart. There's meth, there's alcohol, there's whatever. I need help right now. They don't usually two minutes in say, I've got some advice for you. You're struggling right here. And we know that no human counselor is perfect, but you guys see the picture right here. In Romans 12, God is saying, Who's the counselor here? Who's going to direct me? I am God. And it says there in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be glory forever. So what does glorifying God look like in real life? Because I think we can say, most of us in here would say, I want to give glory to God. I think most of us in here have heard sermons about giving the glory to God. I think most of us in here, we've sing songs about giving glory to God. But what does that look like? Because you might say, hey, I, you know, we're not living in 1517. We're not living in, in uh, you know, it, during the time of the Reformation. I don't, uh, you know, I don't have any relics in my, in my home. I don't have any fingers in a jar. I don't have any, you know, scrap of paper of this or that. I, you know, what, what, what's the deal with this? How do I give glory to God? You know, I didn't pray to St. Anne over my Cheerios this morning. Well, I think the biggest question is, what is our life, what is my life about? Really, that's probably the biggest question on what is my life about? Because you've got all kinds of things pulling you right now that you can be thinking of. You can respond to that text you got a minute ago. You can check Facebook to see if this is really going on. You can uh, think, I've got this game I'm going to watch this afternoon. I've got this game yesterday that I watched that didn't go well. I've got uh, this app going on at work. I need to head over here. Is my kid doing okay? How come that lady three steps over is by herself? How can I? We've got all these things that are pulling our minds all the time. And we, we, we live at a time where our brains are so busy all the time that it's almost like, well, let me take a little two minutes and pray here and pray for the glory of God. Well, the glory of God is something that's supposed to well up from us at, at all times. And, and too much, especially as busy Americans, we just compartmentalize this. So what does that look like? And I would say we need to ask ourselves, what is my life about? And oh, the temptation to say, I know I'm not perfect here, but man, there's someone that's 12 chairs over, they've got a real problem. Or, oh man, my aunt, she says she's a Christian. She doesn't seem to live for the glory of God at all. Or this other guy I know at work, he says, he says, she says. How am I looking for and seeking to glorify the Almighty God? Matthew 5, 16, pretty famous verse, talks about letting our light shine. But it doesn't say let our light shine that people will get saved. That's a glorious thing. It doesn't say let our light shine that people vote better or that there's fewer hurting people or that, you know, this or this or this can happen politically. Let our light shine. Why? So that people can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 
1 Corinthians 10.31, we knew we weren't going to go through this message without that. Whether therefore we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, do all to the glory of God. Well, certainly that makes it pretty easy to hold sinful decisions in the light of that and say, okay, well, we shouldn't sin. But even in good things, what is my life about? And it's so interesting because in a group this size, there's everybody has different things that are pulling them. We have different things that we really, really enjoy. We have different things that we're really good at. And I think it's such a, a gracious gift from God to see skills that different people have that I know nothing about. It'll be some really artistic person or someone really musical person or something that, you know, stage presence kind of stuff. And I'll just think, my goodness, where do people even get that? Or someone, you know, we had a, a group came to the shelter the other night and um, they dressed up like princes and princesses to help put on a party for the, for the residents there. And I'm thinking, me at that age, there's a guy dressed up as a prince or Peter Pan, or I, don't, I don't really know what he was. And I thought, I don't know how much money or how many guns it would have taken to get me to do that. Both to dress up in a little outfit, you know, that's probably a little much, but even to serve and care for other people. On a Friday night, you're in high school, you want to go hang out at a homeless shelter, where some people don't smell good, some people aren't nice, some people are difficult, and might not even be safe. One dad stayed just to make sure his kids were safe. Now, I will say, on, on the flip side of that, as a director of the shelter there, I am so blessed by the people there. I love hanging out with them, and God has really given it as a gift to me, ministry, life, all of that. But if you're some high school kid and you've never been there before, and all of a sudden you're going to, you know, someone's going to dress up as Belle or whomever and wander around, that's, that's, that's doing something with it. That's saying, hey, what can be best use for the best use of my time in every part of life? Johann Sebastian Bach wrote SDG on the bottom. Now, I haven't checked this. I'm, I already prefaced it by saying I'm not a musician. But supposedly he wrote SDG at the front of every title page of every bit of music that he ever wrote. Soli Deo Gloria. That was a purpose. Secular music or sacred music supposed to be stamped on there. When you musicians, you can check on that. But I've, a couple different sources have told me that, that I've read about. What have other people done? Well, Zwingli, another reformer around the same time as, as Luther and Calvin, he risked death and he replaced the mass with a church service that looks a whole lot more like this, with prayer, with scripture reading, with a studying of the word, with baptism, with communion. Zwingli risked death for the glory of God. How about John Huss, 125 years before Luther and Calvin and Zwingli? He showed papal abuses. He was saying, okay, here's a problem I have here. So uh, Jan Hus or John Huss, however you want to know him, he's, he's a pastor. But this is, you know, this is in the, in the 1400s. And he's preaching. And he said as he was preaching, he would look up on the walls and see stained glass. And he would say, here's a picture on the stained glass of the Pope riding a white horse in fancy, in, you know, in fancy harness and saddle and all that stuff. And he's marching along and people are bowing down to him. And he's kind of like this knight on a charger kind of thing. And then there'd be a picture over here of Jesus, and he's walking in dusty sandals along the road. And then we've got a picture of the Pope, and people, he's leaning down so they can kiss his hand. And then on this side, there's a picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And Hus gets up there in church and says, this cannot be. What is this and what is this? These don't even fit together. What are we thinking? Soli Deo Gloria. Serious. And it's a question that I can't define for you, 
what that's going to look in your life, and you can't define for me. But we know areas that we could increasingly glorify God, and we know areas that we are not glorifying God. And, and let's not, you know, the, the secular and the sacred, let's not be too concerned about that in every part of life. It's not, hey, I work, I, you know, we've done a lot of cattle stuff in the past and ranching kind of stuff, and I, and I too many times heard this. You go work a bunch of cows with someone, and it's cursing and blah, 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 and blah, 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 and all this, and then you come back in, and there's a big prayer, and then we, we live a completely different life. And, and the, the thing you'll hear over and over in the ranching community is, there's barn talk and there's house talk, and they don't, and, and th that's cool. And I say, if my kids see me be in one way one day and another way another day, what is that? And I think we, we have a temptation of doing that. We are here. Do we act differently here? Do I act differently here than I do at my job? I sure hope I don't. Do I act differently here than I do at home? I sure hope I don't. Part of glorifying of God is, is being a child of his in every aspect of life, for all of life, for however much time we are given. Another question I have, and this is one that I personally have struggled with. How do you do the glory of God? How do you emphasize? How do you push? How do you think of the glory of God in ugly situations? So I talked to a grandma yesterday at 4 o'clock, and her 7-year-old granddaughter died in a car accident recently in the last six months. And she professes Christ, this woman, and I don't know her well at all. Um, and I said to myself, how is God glorified in this heartbroken woman? And you can ask, and you can think about, maybe you have an ugly situation in a relationship that you have, spouse, extended family, whatever. How is God glorified? Maybe you've been part of a Christian ministry or organization and it is going downhill and downhill and downhill and there's no sin involved, how is God glorified in that? How is God glorified in Nazi Germany? How is God glorified in Syria right now? How is God glorified? And I will tell you at a really basic level, here's how we have to think. God is God and I am not. I can't fix everything. We looked with the youth group on the sovereignty of God today and they shared verses and many of them studied with their parents and came back with stuff that basically said, this, this post that someone had put out, not, not from here, tries to make God very, very small. But the Bible's telling us God's big. And God's bigger than any of this. And if God can set up kings and take down princes, then God is bigger than what this person is writing. And that is the biggest answer that I have. In ugly situations, how is God glorified? Oftentimes, humanly, we will not know. But here is what I pray. God, please be glorified. God, I, don't, I personally don't know how to glorify here, but I want you to be lifted up. I mean, we can say, God, I think this would be great. I can quote scripture and say, God, this is, how, this is how exalted you are. God, this is how you're exalted among the heavens. This is how you're exalted among the nations. But ultimately, God works in his way, and in that, he is glorified. But humanly, it often can be ugly. Keep praying for it and looking for it, especially and even in those ugly situations. And I think those ugly situations remind us of our weakness, remind us of our need, our desperate need for God. Let's look at Isaiah 43. And it says in verse 7, you know, it talks about, I'm going to bring them back, I'm going to bring them back, I'm going to bring them back, and it says, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed 
and made. And then jump over to verse, jump down to like verse 20. Because I, I, I think 20 through maybe 25 kind of helps our thinking in this too. It talks about even the wild beasts, you know, even the, even the created world outside of humanity bringing, bringing honor to him. And then it says, talks about his chosen people at the end of verse 20. And verse 21 says this, it says, the people who I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So that's consistent what we, what, with what we've been talking about here, that they might declare my praise. And he says, yet, you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. He's saying, hey, hey, we've been talking about my need for glory, but you haven't been giving me glory. You've been sinning against me. W- what is going on right here? Then it says, you have not brought me your sheep, in verse 23, for burnt offerings, or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have brought me no sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. He's saying you were supposed to be glorifying me, but you're, you're sinning against me. And it's happening over and over and over. And 700 years before the time of Christ, Isaiah is saying, hey, this is the word from God. You are in sin and you are in rebellion. And what's going on right here? And verse 25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. That gives us some idea of atonement, doesn't it? Gives us some idea of redemption, doesn't it? Gives some idea of, I am buying this. I am taking care of this. You are sinning, but I am reaching down to you. Makes a sound and be reminded of the Messiah, Jesus. Turn back with me one last time to Ephesians 1. There in Isaiah, he's saying, you're sinning against me, you're sinning against me, you're sinning against me, but I created you for my glory, I created you to praise me. What does Ephesians say? Let's read uh, verse 7, and then maybe we might read 13 and 14. What does he say in verse 7? So he's just said, to the praise of his glorious grace, in verse 6, with which he blessed us in the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood. Talking about Jesus right there. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Not according to the riches of my ability, not according to the riches of the good things that I can do, not according to the, I live 700 years before the time of Christ, and I'm in the the audience of Isaiah, and I'm just going to do a little bit better. I'm going to do a little bit better. I'm going to improve. In a little bit, I'm going to be a little better. He says, no, 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 no. What does it say in verse 7? We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of of his grace. And then what does verse 13 and 14 say? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If you're not a believer today, you might be here today and you might be like, you know, who's this guy up here? He's not the normal preacher from what I've heard and stuff. I don't even know much about this Jesus. You read Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to talk with me or Pastor Ted, Pastor Mark, Keith, there's lots of people. Hit somebody up here today and say, I don't understand this. I want to know more. Read this section over and over today. In him also, when you heard the words of truth, in verse 13, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
until we acquire possession of it. You're in the will, but you don't have possession of it yet. There's a little bit of what he's saying here. And what's the big picture of it all? What's the verse, the phrase that he says in verse 6 and in verse 12? At the end here of verse 14, the purpose of all of it is to the praise of his glory. And so in, in conclusion today, I wrote this. The sinful problems that push the start of the Reformation are significant. Justification, is it imputed righteousness? Or is it just a little bit of righteousness thrown your way, a little imparted righteousness? That's a big deal. Is it uh, prayers to saints, indulgences, papal authority, abuses of the clergy? Those are all subsets of the serious, serious problem that glory was being given to another rather than to God. As one pastor wrote, and I thought this was just really good, he says, the fundamental issue of the Reformation was whether the glory of God was shining in its fullness or was somehow being diminished. Let me just read that one more time. The fundamental issue of the Reformation was whether the glory of God was shining in its fullness or was somehow being diminished. Brothers and sisters, let's today let the glory of Christ shine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are weak people. We are sinful people. We are people who so often get mired in the habits and desires and rituals of life that do not best and most clearly bring glory to you. Lord, it is, it is very easy for us to see these reformers and, and see, hey, look at some of the abuses going on in the established church at that time and say, ah, oh, that's terrible. I'd, I'd never do that. But oh, Father, what do we do on our own? What other things do we use to bring ourselves glory? What ways do we exalt ourselves? What ways do we say, I'm following a human instead of I'm following Christ? What ways do we exalt ourselves by what we do with our time? What ways do we exalt ourselves by, by what we seek? Lord, continue to reform us. Let us truly be people that bring you glory to the utmost. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. We stand and respond.
we have uh, several announcements we want to make very quickly. And then, and I know we're past time just a bit, but you're okay because we got lunch coming, all right? So just sit tight. We'll be good. Um, at the conclusion of the announcements, we have a brief God at Work segment that will just take a couple of minutes. So um, just hold on for that, please. Um, these announcements very quickly. We call our ministry teams here at Heritage Servant Sunday and ask volunteers to sign up for a team of, of uh, volunteers who do various uh, things so that the most people possible can focus on worship. It actually takes a lot of people to make this all fly so that you all can sit there and enter into worship. And so we ask you to commit for one calendar year. There are three teams that need some help in 2018. The nursery needs seven helpers. Please see Chris Houston if you're interested. The special events team needs two people. Please see Brandon Boswell. Special events being things like the meal we're having today. And uh, the third Sunday setup team. We have a different team each Sunday of the month that helps set up all the chairs and provide security. The third Sunday team needs two people. Please see Keith, Keith Withrow. The mowing and trimming team needs two people. I see Jeff Cotiller. And uh, these are important areas of service. And we're calling our congregation to step up to the plate of good churchmanship and volunteer for these opportunities to help us. Uh, this coming Wednesday night, our meal is at 5.30 prior to our prayer meeting. We're going to have soup. There'll be five different kinds of soup. Please sign up in the lobby with Kim Withrow right uh, just outside the doors. And that's this Wednesday from 5.30 to 6.15. Today's our quarterly to fellowship meal. The food will be set up over on this side of the gym. Um, we've tried to make it sort of reformed in the spirit of the Reformation season. It's brats and hot dogs and pretzels and German type stuff. So uh, that will be set up over here. But as soon as we're dismissed after our God at Work segment, uh, if you'd like to help move tables and chairs, please see Patrick Rowe. He's standing right there in the back. And if you're not, uh, helping to set up, then please either stay out in the lobby or over on this side of the gym until we're ready to go. And then the food line will work its way around the perimeter to the head of the line right over here back in this corner. So the line's going to run across in front of the bleachers, up this wall and around this way, and the line will go that direction into the food line. If you have children 10 and under, please, parents, keep them with you. And while we're tearing down and setting up, I know kids um, after the service get a lot of energy worked out over on this side of the gym. Today, hold that energy in, and it will help us to get set up if the kids are not running around the chairs and tables. Uh, tonight at 5 o'clock, in the spirit of this Reformation season, our sister church, Grace Reformed Baptist Church here in Owensboro, is sponsoring a joint Reformation service. It'll be in our facility in the chapel down at that end of, end, end of the building. It'll start at 5 o'clock, and we really encourage you to come. That's going to be a wonderful time of worship and remembering the things that took place in the Reformation of the 16th century. Next Sunday, our 2018 budget will be available for members to pick up to look at. You'll have two weeks to uh, look at that, call our finance team with questions, and then on the 19th of November at 5 o'clock, we'll have our annual business meeting where we'll vote on our budget and the two candidates for elders. Now, um, those are the announcements. Now, we have a little different sort of God at Work segment. And for that God at Work segment, I'm going to ask Pastor Ted and Pastor Keith and Pastor Mark to come right here.
Just do what you're told. Come on. Let's go. You are men under authority today. Many of you know that October is Pastor Appreciation Month. There's actually biblical support for pastor appreciation. There's not biblical support for a month or a day. And there are many, many ways in which you can show appreciation for your pastors. And I hope we take opportunity to do that frequently. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 says, We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction." And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Do you know the work that these guys do for you and for me? Do you know how they pray for you? Do you know how they pour their hearts out into preaching to and for you? Do you know the countless ways in which they serve you and help you? And when life goes sour, who do you call? You call these guys. And they're always there. And they pour themselves out over and over and over and over and over again for us. And so it's only fitting that we express our appreciation to them. This is a tiny, tiny, tiny little token of our appreciation. There's a gift card in these envelopes for you guys, and we're giving it to you, but I'm sure your wife would like to enjoy what's in here. And you know how much their wives are involved in the ministry of these guys? So don't you just go out to eat. Take your wives with you, okay? We'd like to play just a brief tribute to these three guys. Don't worry, it's not going to be a video of pictures when they were little. Uh, well, I don't know if we could endure that, could we? Um, this is a song that we're just going to play the recording of that was written for one of Pastor Ted's anniversary celebrations years ago. And um, Katie Redfern wrote the tune uh, for that song, and her dear mom that we miss so much is the accompanist. And some of you know Jim Huff, a dear brother who now lives with his wife in St. Louis. Uh, he's the voice on this song. The words will be up on the screen. And even though it was written for Pastor Ted years ago, no, I don't need to tell you about that. He told me that I have to tell you that I wrote the words to the song. Um, even though it was written for Pastor Ted, you'll see that the words apply to all of these guys. So this is a tribute to these men, and it's our thanks to them. And as soon as the song is over, um, I'm going to pray for these guys. I'll ask the blessing on the food. But please uh, let your heart enter into our, our corporate thanks for the pastors God has given us.
After God's, He promised them so they could shepherd, feed, and tend the flock of God with tenderest care, their hurts and needs and hearts to bear before God's throne again. Those days have come, a shepherd true was sent to. pray for these three guys and, uh, and ask the blessing on our meal today. So join me, please, as we pray. Father, we are so grateful that you raised up true shepherds for this flock. And we pray your blessing on them. Thank you for all the years of ministry represented here. May your blessing come in even larger measures as we move forward into Another year and another day. Lord, bless these men. Keep them true. Keep them faithful. Keep them united. Keep them humble. Keep their hearts. Keep them pure. Keep them faithful servants. Thank you for all that these men have done for us. Thank you for all you have done for us through these.